Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us for the first time on the podcast, longtime commentary contributor, dear old friend of mine, and perhaps the foremost biographer uh, of our time, um, recently out with his uh, portrait of George III, uh, most uh, notably, perhaps, in, in recent times, the biographer of Winston Churchill, maybe the best biography of the last 25 years, uh, World War II historian, historian in general, Andrew Roberts. Andrew, thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and thank you also for those tremendously uh, kind words. Um, Andrew's uh, connections between the Robertses and the and the and commentary go back a long way, including the fact that Andrew's son was an intern here. Um, I don't know. I, I, time stretches as you get older, so you know. I was going to say a couple of years ago, but it could have been eight years ago. I don't even. Yeah, know. it's yeah, it's longer than that. But uh, may I say, he had the most fantastic time there. He ah. really loves the magazine, and uh, he's a huge supporter of yours. Needless to say. Well, thank you. Anyway, so Andrew, as we speak to you, uh, you are sitting in Central Europe. You are in uh, Budapest uh, uh, for a uh, sojourn at a at a at a think tank run by our friend uh, John O'Sullivan. And so, um, you know, I, it is incumbent upon me, even though as you've uh, as you've already indicated to us, uh, you have not been there long for me to say, well, what's the mood on the street? There in in all of Central Europe, the I'm not just talking about Hungary. I want to know about Romania. I want to know about Poland. I want to know what what from your perspective and the yeah. deep understanding that you have from your hotel room yeah. is the spirit when it comes to the uh, conflict in uh, in Ukraine. The overwhelming view of the Slovenes. Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. Thank you, John. Um, I. Uh, I have spoken to um, to some Hungarians uh, since I've been here. I've got another three weeks here, so I'm going to be talking to a, a lot more. Obviously, it's the sole um, topic of conversation. It completely dominates everything. It um, is fair to say that they're nerve-wracked. They're not nerve-wracked primarily about the idea that uh, that Russian tanks are going to uh, roll over the border into Hungary. They recognize that that would start a world war, which um, uh, Putin probably doesn't want. However, they are nerve-wracked for um, uh, lots of reasons. They've had 84,000 um, refugees come over in the last um, in the last week. They're getting about 15,000 a day coming over now. They are um, nerve-wracked about what effect it's going to have on their economy, but primarily they're nerve-wracked about the fact that some 45 to 50% of their energy comes from uh, Russian oil and gas. And so they're worried about freezing. Well, uh, you know, that, that is the, uh, that is the, that is the, the nub of, of everything that, uh, that Putin has, Putin has created conditions under which, uh, you know, his economy is going to, every, every economy on earth is going to suffer because of this war, and I, I want to ask you, as a military historian, which is like your 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 first role, your primary role, 
looking at the balance of forces and how this war was started, is it fair at this point, a week in, to say that the plan for the invasion was a cock-up? Uh, does yeah. it? Okay. Y yes, no, it, absolutely it is, because um, clearly what he wanted was the Blitzkrieg, Blitzkrieg option, whereby Kiev fell in, uh, in a matter of um, uh, hours or days, and that therefore after that it would be a sort of mopping up operation. He completely misunderstood the, uh, the uh, Zelensky himself, uh, the morale of the Ukrainian people, um, the whole, he, he seems to have bought into his own historical um, beliefs about what Ukraine is and, and, and isn't. And, um, and then, of course, he's completely, seems completely to have misunderstood the morale of the Red Army itself, um, because that, uh, that is nothing like as strong as, uh, as it seems to be. So, so, yeah, he has. That does not mean, of course, that he can't just flatten um, Ukrainian cities at the drop of a hat. He, he will be able to do that if he wanted to, but uh, that doesn't mean. Um, but, but yes, he's, he, he got it wrong in the first week, definitely. Okay, so my, 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 my second question then in terms of battle plans and, and war fighting styles is, um, I, I've not been in the military. I, my, my, my knowledge of this is all from, from, from books and, 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 and the like. And, uh, but this convoy on this road 40 miles long, journeying down a single road in the open air with massive amounts of materiel. Am I right in thinking that that is a spectacularly ill-advised method of transporting the war fighting tools that you are going to need, that it, it is sort of like rife with opportunities for sabotage, for... You know, all you have to do is flatten a tire and everything stops. It seems almost demented from the perspective of somebody who is not, in fact, a general. Um, no, well, I'm not a general either. Yeah, but you but, play but, one but, on TV. But it has, <laughs> it has got to within 18 kilometers, so about 11 miles away from the outskirts of uh, Kiev. So actually, it's a... Uh, uh, it's a it's a clear and present danger already. The fact that it took longer to get there might well have been, as British intelligence has argued, it's partly to do with um, Ukrainian um, resistance and sabotage. Uh, also, there's been talk of um, Russian soldiers themselves leaving petrol caps off and and uh, and deliberately uh, destroying their own um, their own sort of engines and so on. And there's a there is this very strong sense that the army the russian army was sent in on a totally false prospectus and that they um, and they, they don't want to be doing what they're doing you know they're expecting to be treated as liberators in fact they're being shouted at and and, and shot at obviously so um so yes the uh, the um the, the tactics do seem to be um bad but so is the morale and so is the strategy well andrew can i talk to you briefly about that strategy <clears throat> insofar as we can glean it from our remove um, it does seem to be that Ukraine traded space for strategic advantages, retreating into the cities. And as you said earlier, um, the Russian military has the capacity to execute the kind of uh, bombing campaigns, forward artillery campaigns that would really level uh, the you know, ur urban, uh, urban spaces that 
Ukraine is preparing to defend. But what strategic objectives does that leave Putin? How? What is the end game now? Because the end game, if it was, if we can assume the Blitz had succeeded, it would be to decapitate the government, install a friendly puppet, and retreat. What is the strategic objective now? Especially if the plan is to engage in in bloody, prolonged urban conflict, with the perhaps only outcome being to to level the city, to level the cities. Um, if if you can even succeed in that objective, which is something that we'll just have to assume they do, what is Vladimir Putin's exit strategy? Well, that's right. Everything you said is right, but one and one also has to add in the fact that um, flattened cities are actually an awful lot easier to defend than, um, than ones that are still standing up. You look at the Battle of Monte Cassino, the Battle of Caen, there are any number of, uh, actually the Battle of Kharkov, um, which, of which there were four between 1941 and 1943, um, which led to the deaths of uh, about a quarter of a million um, Soviet soldiers. So, you know, these are um, a, the, the ideal place for a defender is essentially a, a, a machine gun uh, post behind a, underneath a flattened city. That's what you want. And that's what it looks like um, Putin is beginning, at least, to, to give to the defenders of uh, Ukraine. So what's the answer? What does he want? Um, presumably, he's got to, to make a decision in the next 48, 72 hours about whether or not he wants a completely flattened Ukraine, uh, all the major cities just, uh, just like Aleppo. Um, or alternatively, um, he's got to come to some kind of negotiation because there is no way that this figure, this Zelensky figure, is now anything other than a modern day Churchill. Oh, okay. So let let us, <clears throat> you are the perfect person to discuss this analogy, obviously. The Zelensky-Churchill analogy. So uh, I said the other day that the, that the, the Dunkirk uh, speech was probably the greatest speech of the 20th century and that the quality that it had was that it was a speech after a after a defeat it was a speech after a terrible strategic calamity that britain having to retreat from the continent and not to return for another four years um and that in spite of the horror and the and the and the strategic disaster that had been fallen there was this ray of light or optimism or hope in the nature of the retreat and the fact that so many lives, hundreds of thousands of lives were saved by this makeshift armada. And so Churchill was able to convey the horror of what had happened to to Britain and convey the sense that the nation itself in its soul and in its spirit was not only strong, but would you know, defend to the death its existence against this existential threat. Now, we haven't seen Churchillian language from Zelensky, but it is pretty close to the same message. I, 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 would, I would disagree with you there, uh, John. I think we have heard Churchillian language, actually. I think in several of his updated modern Churchillian language, you know, done obviously over, over an iPhone, um, but we've 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 had the equivalent several times from him now. Um, not just the one where he has the um, prominent building in the background and the members of his cabinet in the background, but also these uh, speeches to the to Europe and uh, the one that he gave to his uh, his people four days into the into the conflict. I mean, these are these are modern day Churchillian um, um, flights of rhetoric. You get the refusal to. Um, 
to kind of make it easier for anyone to listen to them. And he really does tell the truth, which is something Churchill did. And he's refusing to leave the capital and he's talking about fighting to the death, not just for him, but his family and so on. I mean, this is, this is really Churchillian stuff. He also is using his words to inspire his own troops in a way that I think is we haven't talked about a lot. I was recalling, you know, just before Putin invaded, the discipline, the extreme discipline that Ukrainians had to exercise to not be drawn into a conflict that they were clearly being provoked into so that they could say, we did not start this. That takes, I mean, I, I know a little bit about military strategy from reading history books, but that takes an enormous amount of discipline among just every soldier on the line. It also takes absolute trust in who is leading you in, into that position. And they clearly have that with him in a way that, again, is kind of remarkable given his youth and given his past experience as an entertainer. I mean, it's it's it, there's, a, there's an amazing clip going around of him when he was playing the role of a president, you know, he'd applied to the EU and, and did you, have you guys seen this? And then the call oh, yeah. comes and it's someone pretending to be Angela Merkel who says, you know, yes, you're, you're, you're in. And he's excited. And then she realizes she's made a terrible error. She didn't mean to call Ukraine. She meant to call another country. Montenegro. He, she was, yes, she was calling Montenegro. Yeah. But it's he remarkable. Just, I mean, yeah. he, he literally has played a role that he now actually has stepped into with, with amazing gravitas, but his, his uh, loyal, the loyalty of his own military is, is what struck me in the in the last few weeks yeah and the and as you say the self-restraint which was absolutely necessary to prove putin to be the uh, aggressor so in a sense what um, what the zelensky government um, essentially has done is to play both the neville chamberlain role which was to prove that hitler was the uh, was the um, aggressor and also the churchillian role all in one all in one person essentially i mean it's a uh, it's an extraordinary capacity. And your mention of Merkel, I think, is very interesting. Uh, maybe you were going to come on to this uh, later anyhow. But hasn't her reputation collapsed uh, over the last week? I mean, she is, from, from having been the person who was lauded by President Obama and pretty much everybody else as being the greatest stateswoman of the, of the century, she, um, she now really looks as though she's managed to get it wrong on so many fronts uh, so many times, don't you think? Well, so if history is contingent, as we keep saying, um, the the rise of Zelensky to this world historical, potentially world historical role would be among the most historically contingent things that has happened in our in our lifetimes. Um, I, and uh, yeah, go ahead. Abe. Well, I just I hate to frame it in these terms or to even think about it in these terms, um, but while I, I thoroughly agree that Zelensky has been a, a, a modern Churchill here, the landscape, the media landscape in particular, is so vastly different than it was when Churchill was Churchill. And um, how great might the challenge be for Zelensky to sustain? I mean, I'm almost sort of talking in sort of media terms, which is why I say I hate it, because the, the moment is much larger than that. And it, it's it's a... It's almost a kind of um, a, a shallow uh, reading of things. Nevertheless, that that's the nature of the of the audience. How tough is it for him to continue to sustain this kind of um, impressive, um, inspiring, world inspiring? I don't want to say performance, but performance and and attention. I mean, um, there's sort of the risk of um, overexposure. Uh, not for me, but, um, you know, uh, the, the public sympathies 
are the public is extraordinarily fickle and uh, its attention span is is nil. Well, you know, the public and then there's one other aspect, which is that what you would what what you would expect with the rise of this kind of um, uh, celebrity and kind of universal support, even though uh, it would frighten people at the beginning is and this is not a joke that, um, you know, there would be a story in Teen Vogue about how on the set of his sitcom he molest, you know, he 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 made a pass at the makeup girl or something like that. I mean, that's what under conventional circumstances we would expect, you know, that, that you have this kind of uh, immense, uh, you know, rise to prominence and kind of universal uh, acclaim. And then this accompanying hunger to take him down. And there is after all a Russian propaganda machine that, uh, that whirs and has, has its tentacles all over the place that could certainly manufacture disinformation about him. The question is whether whether the Western media will bite or whether he has achieved a kind of, and this is not a happy analogy for me entirely, but like a Fauci level of of impregnability that would mean that doing doing publishing such stories or highlighting such stories right now would be seen as an evil act uh, that was, um, you know, intended to destroy the morale of the Ukrainian people and effectively to side with Putin. It strikes me very much that if this carries on being the number one story, which I think it will be for for a very long time until one side or the other has won in in Ukraine, that um, any attempt to uh, to undermine Zelensky along that kind of a sort of scandal ridden line um, would be seen as uh, as Russian disinformation or misinformation, which uh, which, by the way, it probably would be as well. Um, you know, I mean, he has been in the public eye already for um, for some time. You know, it's not as though this is the this is the his his uh, only moment of fame. He became a president after an election, after all. You know, in which there was a lot of he was accused of corruption at one point. You know, but then um, accusations of corruption are the sort of absolute basis point of of Ukrainian politics and have been for 30 years. Nothing stuck to him yet. So uh, I don't think we should worry about that. I think we should really worry about about a much more physical threat to him, which is him actually winding up being the first leader um, of a a country to be killed in his capital, fighting against the enemy, really since General Gordon in Khartoum in 1885. I mean, it's interesting because someone someone brought up the fact that we, we, we have evidence, or there's at least some intelligence evidence, that Putin has, you know, sent out kill squads after Zelensky personally, and that this is a absolute violation of the Geneva Convention. And if we are actually excuse me, I'm sorry, activating all the international organizations of the world to create this phalanx against Putin that, you know, he could be up on, he could be up on charges in the Hague next week. Now, I don't mean to say that that really has that much of an effect, but, you know, the whole idea is if, if, if there are a hundred tiny little daggers coming at Putin from, you know, from, from, banking stuff to threats to his children's bank account to whatever um you know that is very distracting and uh, this it, is it, his I may, war and okay, i want to ask ahead. andrew about this because yeah. along those lines john and we're talking about sustainability the shift in the epochal shift in european attitudes 
has been profound. Um, not just you know Germany abandoning pacifism, increasing its own uh, you know defense spending to two percent GDP, half a dozen other states, particularly those in Central Europe, increasing their own defense spending, and most miraculously of all, Europe dragging us by the nose into sanctioning Russian energy. I've seen some uh, energy firms, private firms, uh, <clears throat> divesting voluntarily from their Russian deposits, but now you have Britain, Poland calling for sanctions on banks that. Tran do process transactions of European energy, effectively sanctioning the energy sector in Russia, which would be a, a serious blow to uh, Russia's capacity to be a state, let alone wage war. Um, is that sustainable in the long run? I, I, I don't know. This shock to the system seems to have really uh, brought about a sea change in European attitudes, but how long before we get a, a Merkel-esque accommodationist view rising back to the fore? Um, I think it'll be some time. I think people will still be watching this, uh, the day-by-day, blow-by-blow account of what uh, happens in uh, in Ukraine. I think that um, you couldn't, I mean, you, you didn't need to stop there. I mean, what about Sweden and Finland joining NATO? That could be a... Uh, unintended consequence of, uh, of what Putin has set in train here, which would have very long-term consequences uh, as well. I think that um, with regard to the ICC, it, Putin himself isn't worried about this because he's in it all or nothing. But I wouldn't be surprised if lots of people around him were very worried. There is that moment, you remember in that movie, uh, Death of Stalin, where they're all looking at one another, you know, as they're sort of carrying the coffin, <laughs> wondering who's going to be the person who, who sort of shoves the knife into Beria. Um, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, six months down the road, we aren't in a situation like that in the Kremlin. You know, um, I, going to Noah's point about um, this uh, astonishing European shift, the question is, uh, and I guess going back to, every historical cheap historical analogy you can think of um you know the minute the minute that the nazis invaded poland neville chamberlain who remained prime minister right for another three months was it eight, three months, mo eight months eight months immediately acknowledged that he had made a calamitous calamitous historical error and the the right the mood kind of he didn't really admit to that. And actually, okay. when, um, and later okay. on, even in the April of 1940, he was saying that Hitler had missed the bus. Um, uh, and then two days okay. later, Hitler invaded um, uh, Norway and, and Denmark. So he, ca he carried on making making mistakes. OK, but but in any case, the, 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 the general sense that, you know, appeasement as a policy was the right the approach fair. ended right the minute that appeasement obviously failed but like there was no there was no way to continue to imagine that this was that this had done the trick or was the way to do the trick and i guess the question is putin's actually pulling the trigger and going in and going in with this invasion that mood shift that noah talks about how deep is that or are we in this kind of like moment spasm of emotional enthusiasm that could, you know, could be reversed by, I don't know what, just this is Abe's point, like by the, by the unbelievably short attention span of the, of the West. Uh, partly that, and also, you know, what kind of a person is Schultz? Um, it strikes me that, uh, that he must be looking now at his, um, 
his historical role, world historical role, and uh, recognizing that it can't be the Merkel way because, you know, Merkel's uh, name is mud uh, right the way across the uh, continent now. And so instead of being this great stateswoman who he wanted to follow, he's got to step out on his own. And the way that um, the whole of the world, or at least the Western world, has has lauded him for doing pretty much basic things. I mean, the Germans should have been paying 2% of their GDP anyhow. (laughs) Uh, on, uh, on, you know, you guys pay 4.5%, um, the Italians pay 1.1%, you know. And by the way, the British, who have been paying 2%, only do it by by basically cooking the books. We put war widows' <laughs> pensions and intelligence and things like that on the uh, on the books to bring us up to 2%. I mean, it's, and, and 2% isn't enough either, you know. So all in all, right. you know, the Germany has... Yes, it's starting to look at uh, liquefied national gas terminals. Yes, it's doing um, something with regard to not ga- cancelling the whole of the rest of its n- nuclear abolition program. But it's really still child's child steps. There is a flip side to this, these attitudes, which have a frenetic energy to them, <clears throat> which is beginning to worry me. A bit of a cultural backlash against all things Russian. Uh, in my state, they're re- they're taking away the licenses for people who operate Luke Oil gas stations. You've heard about uh, the removal of Russian literature from libraries, video games, taking the Russian national team out of the out of contention, you know, for whatever they play, soccer, hockey, what have you. Um, that's really dangerous to me. It's, the, the, the and, and has the no, capacity I... in the event of a spillover event in Eastern Europe to have a wild conflagration of public opinion against Russia that we can't control. I think you're right in, in most of that. Um, especially with regard to literature, of course. Um, but also, but I think you're wrong with regard to the sporting. I think that does um, harm and hurt the uh, Russians. It gets to Russians who are otherwise being completely uh, brainwashed by their propaganda. The idea that they that their sporting teams and their sporting individuals can't, you know, even play tennis, let alone football or, or you know, join the Paralympics. Uh, as Russians, I think is one of the ways, and we saw this with apartheid in South Africa, that it actually does get to ordinary people in a way that an awful lot of other sanctions might not. Oh, I'm certainly not opposed about- to ejecting any uh, any Russian yeah. entity from the IOC. Ejecting them from EA Sports video games is something else, I believe. Well, can we <laughs> can we talk a little about the cultural exchange question? Because clearly, from what we can tell, the Russian intelligentsia, and I, I mean the sort of the you know, the, the blue state Russians, let's say, uh, you know, in Moscow and St. Petersburg in particular, but, you know, the highly educated class and the, all that. Um, my, my, my supposition based on everything that I've read and Russians that I know is that, you know, they are 75 to 80% against this war and are, are very hostile to, to Putin. And there is the danger in this kind of revved up enthusiasm of um not separating them from the from the regime uh they could be a very important force against the regime um you know if they're the more emboldened they are and the more the greater sense they have i mean can putin sustain a multi-front conflict in which he has to focus on the literal battle plan of what's going on every day in Ukraine in these cities and simultaneously fight a an intellectual civil war within his own country 
um, you know, that's very distracting. And that is a distraction we would want him to have to undergo. And we should be doing everything we can, it seems to me, to support those people and get them to talk out and somehow get, you know, figure out ways to smuggle them equipment so they can do, you know, low broadcast radio stuff and all of that. If Putin is shutting down, you know, their actual hard stations and news reports and stuff like that. Well, that's right. And actually we have um, had a few uh, oligarchs come out against him, but only ones who are safe in the West. (laughs) You're never that safe from Putin wherever you are in the West, of course. Yes. Someone Uh, just got killed in Surrey. There's an oligarch who mysteriously was murdered last night in Surrey. Or, I I mean, I, I, it's funny because, um, you know, it's like there seemed to be an inexhaustible supply of oligarchs. There was a time when I think I I thought I knew the name. There were like 20 oligarchs and I kind of knew, uh, knew all of their names. And now they're like, it's like, it's like this, the Saud family, like, you know, there are, there are cousins and brothers, oligarchs and nephew oligarchs. Either that or the gold standard for what counts as an oligarch has gone down. You you don't need as much gold as you used to, you know, to become an oligarch. You're just a multi-billionaire, you know, there's a big, there should be oligarch inflation. I like, yeah, it's it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that is an interesting thing, right? So some oligarchs have come out. There's yeah, the oligarchs, and, but yeah. And I think the point that you and also Noah were making about about getting the getting the right people is tremendously important because um, we remember. I mean, in, in 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 wars, this does happen. You know, there's a there's a terrible sense that um, just because you're Russian, you are a, you're a bad thing. We, you know, look at the Second World War with what. Uh, happened to Japanese Americans. What in the in the Second World War with Britain, where we in, uh, interned everyone with a Austrian or German um, uh, passport, essentially, including lots of Jews who hated Hitler. So all in all, you know, you can make make sort of terrible mistakes. And Churchill said it was in the highest degree odious to imprison anybody. Um, but and and the same thing is obviously is true of attacking somebody simply because they're Russian. When when you look at this, when I brought up the history being contingent, can you think of an analogy for Zelensky, which is to say uh, somebody who seems to have been almost kind of called up by history? I mean, there's kind of Lincoln. I, again, it's, it's a little weird to be analogizing this guy to the greatest figures of Western civilization when you know his stand has only been two weeks long. Um, although I have to say, I thought the moment that he became a, a, a world figure was, of course, when he got trapped on that phone call by Donald Trump to talk about whether or not he would reopen an investigation to help Trump go after the Bidens um, uh, and their uh, connections in Ukraine. And that um, uh, he was put in as impossible a position as any leader ever could have been, particularly one as inexperienced as he was at that moment, and kind of slithered through it with remarkable grace in which he somehow did not his fingerprints and his conduct and his way he handled it uh, was left entirely to one side as everybody focused on on Trump and Trump's behavior. He could have overreacted. He could have gotten too scared. He could have gotten too defiant and then created an enemy that was not, you know, that would not have been helpful to him. Um, And that showed, I think, real, uh, like a a shocking amount of 
skill uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a quality of leadership that it, we don't actually often think of, which is how do you manage incredibly difficult relations with somewhat irrational figures? That's, a, the, you know, that's half of leadership, international leadership. That's right. And I think, um, I think this is probably the ideal time, uh, whilst we're talking about his intelligence and his you know, diplomatic ability and so on, to, to, to mention the fact he's Jewish. I mean, this completely and utterly destroys the argument that the Ukrainians are neo-Nazis, which has been put forward by Lavrov, put forward twice by Putin. You know, if they were neo-Nazis, would they have elected a, a Jew as president and a Jew as prime minister? The whole thing, it, thereby the central... Uh, feature of their the other one of course is that they're all drug addicts and it strikes me that yeah. the way that Zelensky has acted in the last eight days pretty much undermines that uh, yeah or we should all be taking well. that drug whatever that yeah drug that's is. right exactly. all... say, he, that's he has right. the effect of a Valium on people not that yeah. he's taking yeah. it himself right. yeah. yeah we want to find out the drug he's taking and give it to all the other generals <laughs> but it is um, yeah go ahead I mean he's got to be in a sense uh, when, when was the last world this popular figure um, in the world who was um, who was Jewish, Moshe Dayan, maybe I'm trying to think. Like, like in, in the wake of the Six Day War, yeah, well, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm trying to think. Like most most, I think you're right. Jewish political leaders in the world are are controversial figures, and and um, Moshe Dayan, who was not entirely deserving, <laughs> by the way. Um, in terms of his own accomplishments and his own and his own conduct as the as the defense minister in Israel, but nonetheless he cut this you know figure right. He had this eye yeah. patch and he was swaggering and he was tough. And he was romantic. It was a, you know he was like a kind of a, a figure out yeah. of a out of a uh, out of out of Exodus, and so he played that role. Yeah, but I and can't think and of that's a half, single. That's half a century yeah. ago. You know, I mean, yeah. it's it's it's. I think it's it's fabulously good for um, for the Jewish people that they've got somebody who the world is admiring to this extent. And, and you know, again, in terms of historical contingency, I mean, Ukraine was historically one of the worst places on earth to be a Jew when there was a, a substantial Jewish population in Ukraine before, you know, before the Second World. You know, much of the uh, immigration to the United States, including parts of my own family, you know, fled Ukraine uh, for for the United States because life there was intolerable. And there was a lot of, you know, there's, I mean, anti-Semitism doesn't really describe what the conditions were in a place like that where where Jews were being made an object of, um, you know, they, they were sort of, they were a, they were a, a whipping boy, a scapegoat, uh, subject to pogroms and all of that, and that we should come and so, you know, if you ask an, uh, a, a, an American Jew in particular, but certainly a British Jew or whatever, you know, uh, to name the places on earth that in their, in their own historical understanding would be inimical to uh, living a sustained or, or proper good Jewish life or whatever, like, you know, I mean, Ukraine would be up in the top five in terms yeah. of family memories and 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 stories and that we have come here to 2022 with this world hero of a formerly you know legendarily jew-hating land uh again speaks to how unpredictable 
you know, and then also, you know, some people like my friend, um, our columnist, Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik, I'm sure can come up with an entire explanation for how this is, you know, the hand of God is at work here, that there's a, that there's, you know, when something like this happens, you almost look for a supernatural element to explain it because it is so, you know, it, it goes beyond your sort of rational understanding and, and pr- particularly with the path that Zelensky took uh, as, you know, like he's like, uh, I don't know, Kelsey Grammer or Ted Lasso, you know, he's like Ted, Ted Lasso becoming Jason Sudeikis becoming uh, a coach of a British soccer team because he played one in <laughs> Ted Lasso. You know, this is not ordinarily the way these things go although obviously he's incredibly clever the single best detail about him i think you might agree is that um uh, he was the voice of the animatronic paddington bear uh in the ukrainian <laughs> dubbed version of the paddington uh movies the second of which by the way not to go totally off the rails here the second of which with hugh grant as a as a as a has been actor is one of the best movies of the last 10 years and everybody should see it paddington 2 you can skip paddington 1 but you should see paddington 2 andrew you see movie you probably haven't seen paddington i know my my kids have grown up but um but yes. so of yours so i'm wondering what your excuse is <laughs> oh i've i've seen it well i i have an 11 year old so that's 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 one excuse but anyway um just on, uh, on this on this yeah. uh, the the matter of his being jewish and it and um one of the things that's so um, wonderful about Zelensky is that not only is he, he's he's Jewish, but he's who he has shown the world he is um, is such a stark refutation of anti-Semitic tropes, right? Yeah. Uh, namely, the rootless coward trope, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is he speaks of nothing more more enthusiastically than 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 loving Ukraine and dying for Ukraine. Um, and his, his courage is on display second by second every time we see him. Nor has he shied away from his Jewish identity in a, in a speech right. to the country. Quote, I am now addressing all the Jews of the world. Don't you see what is happening? This is why it is very important that millions of Jews around the world not remain silent right now. Uh, I can't even imagine uh, another figure in a country like his, which has a complicated history with the, the Jew, Jewish identity, just draping himself in it. Look, it's a very complicated situation, by the way, for Israel. And there's been a lot of pressure being put on Israel. Um, a, a lot of it by the sort of ha ha, you know, uh, left that is, uh, that is, um, you know, critical of Israel to say, how come Israel isn't in the forefront of, you know, sort of like, fighting and sanctioning and doing all this and, and and there's a there's an explanation for it which we can go into a little bit um uh israel is in a very ticklish position in relation to the russians because because russia took this dominant role in the civil war in syria <clears throat> the private connections and relations between israel and the russians in ensuring that they do not engage with each other as as uh, that that Israel remains in a position to defend itself on its northern border and to keep spillover from hitting the north of Israel uh, has has they have established a series of relations with the Russians to make sure that they know where each other is and that they don't tripwire over each other 
and and uh, and they're clearly very worried about um, about uh, ending up in a situation in which they cannot maintain that line of connection with Russia. Um, but it appears that public opinion inside Israel, as other is 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 having its way and is changing the dynamic. Naftali Bennett, the prime minister, was clearly doing what he could to stay out of it and not make statements and letting more junior officials and others in the in the coalition government make statements. And they now they voted against Russia at the UN and various other things. But um, but when people ask why why that's the why it has been the case that you know there hasn't been this kind of you know Israeli uh, move to you know to make Ukraine the centerpiece of 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 the of the of the struggle for freedom, um, this is really the reason. Um, There's an isn't there also an Iranian aspect to it as well as a Syrian one in that they don't want to push the Russians even closer to the Iranians. I, I've seen well, I'm, that I'm sure. A bit. I'm sure. And they probably have bad. And honestly, the way these things work, the, probably their only back channel to Iran to the extent that they need a back channel to Iran, which could include things like saying, tell your asset so-and-so maybe not to be in, you know, in calm uh, on Thursday, you know, that kind of thing messages like that to make sure that if they're going to stage an action or something like that it doesn't go too far and you know and 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 have terrible ancillary consequences it's likely that any such private way station comes from russia through israel and again it's it's like the this is like you know the shadow world of that israel has lived in um and it, it becomes very difficult when you are forced when 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 if you're living in that shadow world to have to make a moral, you know, to be put in a position where you have to make a public moral choice that may have, and you have to make the choice ultimately, like maybe you do have to sacrifice that connection because you can't stay silent or because, because there is this um, figure uh, who may be a world historical figure in the history of Jewry. If the thing goes on like this, um, whom you have to celebrate and whom you have to you have to take to your bosom as a as a you know as a kind of transcendent figure. Now, now having said that, this is where I'm worried, and Noah's worried, and Abe's worried, and I think we've all been very weirdly pessimistic over the last two weeks, and that's why I wanted to ask you about this. You just I said, oh wow, that that uh, convoy is really getting disrupted. And uh, look at that. Maybe that was stupid. And you're like, yeah, but they're 11 kilometers away or they're 17 kilometers away. Like, okay, it's taken them a long time, but it's not like they're not advancing. I mean, they're not, it's not inexorable because it's been halting, but eventually they're going to get there and terrible things are likely to start happening on a scale that, you know, right now we're like the, Oh, look at these poor people in the subway sleeping in the subway station, or, Oh my God, look at all these people trying to get on trains or something like that. And then, and then we have images of the, of the, of the Kharkiv uh, square and all, but we haven't seen 5,000 people killed in an area. You know, it's like, and if, 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 if the blitz in London had taken place during the internet era, and there were 10,000 cell phones. You know, George Will once said that if there had been television at Antietam, we would be two nations today. 
So that's the question. Will that stuff fortify the world's resolve against Putin? Or will the horrors that we may see, which will which will dwarf horrors in, in many ways that anybody has ever seen before, will they punch the heart out of this? I think they'll fortify against Putin. I think that um, once you see those tanks uh, going over the rubble and uh, taking out those machine gunners who I was telling you about earlier, um, I think uh, once you get, and, and 5,000 I think is a, is a wildly optimistic number, frankly. Uh, I was just thinking people. one day strike, actually. Not, yeah, right, okay. Not yeah. over well, time. I mean, you could, no, no, no. You could do, I mean, 53,000 people were killed in the Blitz. Um, and, uh, and this is, and the Blitz was done from the air, where you could hide in, um, in uh, well, hide. You could take, uh, take refuge in underground stations. Whereas, um, whereas an actual infantry assault uh, following up an armoured assault on a... Um, a heavily defended um, urban area is just about as bad as it gets. Again, a quarter of a million people died at Stalingrad. So, um, so you know, we, we could be on the verge of an absolute cataclysm, which, as you say, hasn't been seen on, on cell phones uh, before, anything like that. Uh, Rwanda wasn't like that. Uh, Yugoslavia, ex-Yugoslavia wasn't like that either. So we could be in actual uncharted territory when it comes to the, the public revulsion. But I think the public revulsion will be wholly directed against Putin and Russia with this. I think it'll be much stronger even than it is at the moment, um, especially if that happens. And if they use cluster bombs and phosphates and various other weapons that are banned by, um, banned by international convention, then that will also infuriate um the uh, the world opinion so so i'm 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 worried to, <laughs> you know, sorry to say that there is a very good chance that we ain't seen nothing yet well i'm quite i, quite I just want to say I, my real fear <clears throat> in terms of uh, uh, public attention and sympathy and uh, enthusiasm wane poss possible waning enthusiasm comes after that um i agree that when the the sort of the worst of the cataclysm hits uh, that what we're seeing now in terms of Western sympathy and support for Ukraine um, will grow dramatically. <clears throat> but if cities are flattened um, and then the, the Ukrainian resistance fights back from those flattened cities, and if something like a slog sets in, if it becomes the weather, that's when I fear Americans, Westerns lose their interests. Well, this is horrible. The world's horrible. What are you going to do? I can't watch it anymore. Well, Noah, let me let me ask let me ask you this, Noah, Christine. Um, then there's the opposite, which is we're going to see images we haven't seen before, and then the question is this absolute resolute assertion that we are not going to get directly involved militarily. How, Andrew, how firm do you expect that determination to be? We cannot engage with the Russians directly because that will start, you know, that, that will trigger the potential of, uh, of, of the use of, of nuclear weapons. Not if there is a humanitarian catastrophe and somebody uses a term the way our friend Brett Stevens did yesterday, which was to create a humanitarian air corridor, which from what I can tell is a wonderful 
uh, semantic uh, shift from a no-fly zone. I mean, granted, a no-fly zone is intended to protect the Ukrainian people from Russian military aircraft flying over and bombing. And we're talking about we will want to do an airlift. You leave us alone. We are flying goods in and we're going to drop, you know, we're going to do the Berlin airlift and you're not going anywhere near the Berlin airlift. That's still a vi- that's still a semi no fly zone, right? Um, and we're hearing no one's going to do it, and we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And I don't know. In the reverse of the, we have no attention span. I don't know that we're gonna that public opinion isn't going to insist that we do more. Um, I think public opinion will will certainly try. It, it'll be great in terms of making sure that uh, NATO floods across the Hungarian and Polish and other borders, um, anti-tank weaponry and, uh, and other extremely useful armaments to the resistance. And that could carry on for years. Um, but, um, but the idea of, uh, of NATO shooting down um, Russian planes over Kiev, I mean, it's, I'm afraid that's fantastical as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you're, you're then essentially getting into the kind of... Um, War whereby Putin invades the Baltic states um, and and saber rattles against against the whole of the uh, of the of his eastern border. I, I think that that would be incredibly counterproductive. Yeah, I, I imagine cooler heads will prevail to that extent. But Andrew, you had also mentioned, you know, if we see evidence of cluster munitions, what have you, uh, according to Bellingcat and Amnesty International and the American ambassador to the United Nations, who said yesterday in the General Assembly that they have evidence that Russia is using these weapons. The International Criminal Court has opened an investigation in the Putin regime. We've heard the mayor, we haven't seen these images of the mayor of Kherson, which is apparently a contested city, although we don't know who's who has control of it yet, has talked about mass graves, shoveling citizens into, into pits because they don't have enough people to bury them. Um, we're essentially, if we do this, and I, I, this is very disorienting to me because I've spent the, my entire career advocating for hawkish policies and now all of a sudden i'm the guy saying well slow down a little bit guys with this rhetoric getting pretty it's getting hot in here um we're essentially communicating to vladimir putin that you're not getting out of this alive you're either in a box or in a cage for the rest of your life um that is extremely dangerous to communicate to him that this is an existential conflict he will prosecute it like it's an existential conflict well that's right which is why i'm saying that it isn't an existential conflict um except for um domestically for him you know if it turns out that there are people in his inner sanctum who reckon that he's gone mad and that he's uh, got to be stopped if there are riots in the streets if there are enough people who are arrested if the ruble continues to collapse if the um, russian economy continues to um to nosedive um then you can have something domestic uh, going on but the idea of of us uh, getting into World War III with um, with Putin over Ukraine, which is not a NATO member, I'm afraid, is is pie in the sky. I just meant that if we want to do this humanitarian air corridor, well, presumably with the United Nations Air Force, like who okay, who is, I, who's, okay, who's executing yes. this strategy? Fair enough, but I mean. The the reason the way we get in a shooting war, if what we were doing was primarily or almost exclusively humanitarian, would be if Putin said, "No, no, we're not. Don't you're not. You know, we can't let that happen." Um, so uh, anyway, it's a distinction without a difference. Clearly, every major military thinker and military official in the West 
is focused on precisely what Noah and and Andrew said. I'm just I, I'm more I'm wondering at the speed in with which public opinion has moved. Um, the do something, you know. I mean, not, I, now I really don't want to make horrible historical analogies. Um, so this is not an analogy to the current situation, but you know, it's now seventy years later, and there is a continuing and never-ending debate over why didn't the United States bomb the train tracks to Auschwitz when they knew that Auschwitz was, a, a, you know, a, a death camp, um, and uh, and there this question that may haunt people which is why didn't if there was more we could do now andrew you're talking about you know obviously the the infiltration of arms and goods to keep the resistance going um across the border and i guess that's true of humanitarian aid as well but there could be a moment six weeks from now when people say we could have done more and we didn't and now, now we must. Now, maybe that doesn't mean a no-fly zone because that is too provocative and too dangerous, right? It's too tripwired. I think you're absolutely right, John. The sentiment, the wild, frenetic, anti-Russian sentiment can lead us in, in a direction that politicians and the political class and the governing class knows full well is catastrophic, but simply can't stop it. And then there are enough voices in the West who can do it without with, with, with no consequence, right? I mean... In other words, if Roger Wicker, a senator from Mississippi, wants to say we should have a no-fly zone, he's not the you know, he's not the Secretary of Defense. He's not in the military high command. I don't even know if he's on if he's on the Armed Services Committee. You know, he can say anything. Anybody can say anything. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean anything unless it's a reflection of uh, galloping public opinion. But I, I I do have to say that that. While uh, Schultz's move to, you know, spend more on defense and all of that is so shocking from the perspective of, you know, the last 15 or 20 years of, of German history, um, uh, the generally pacifistic lean of the, intele- you know, in, in the intellectual classes of, of the West that's going to be hard to overcome in, in, in this rallying cry. Like we don't. You know, 9-11 was a was a weird because we were we were physically attacked and thousands of people were killed and, you know, major cities were attacked. And that was terrifying. But for us to change our minds and get involved militarily in a shooting war in in Europe, even though it's a shoot that doesn't in which we are not a primary combatant, I think it would be very hard for the opinion you need to push the leadership of the country too, particularly this leader, the American leadership, which is, you know, basically, uh, you know, a, a part of the Harvard, Yale, Princeton class. But I think that, that would be a huge change. But I, I, except there's one difference in which I think it, it would in some some sense among some set be easier to change minds on this than it was in 9-11, which is that because 9-11 was an attack on the U.S., it gave a certain type of left-leaning, anti-American, American, the opportunity to say, we brought this on ourselves. We had this coming. Right. They, they took a shot on, this is, this is our, this is evidence of our guilt. Uh, you can't 
I mean, you can try. It's a much harder case to 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 make that now in 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 regard to Ukraine. Right. Andrew, some I want to shift. Can we shift gears? That, though, oh, they? Um, some some conservative voices are doing that. Yeah. Oh, the West. exactly. Yes. On the right. And, yes. Uh, you know, yes. Uh, you see yeah. that both from the left and also some on your on your uh, right, uh, yes. especially in America. Um, and uh, and then some people like Mr. Uh, Vance, J.D. Vance, um, saying that he doesn't care in the slightest what's going on uh, in uh, in Ukraine, and that's a that's a rather um, worrying development as well on your um, Republican side. It is now. I want to shift gears and ask you whether this crisis has come at a salve. Um, I was going to say salvatory, but that's not. I don't know. I'm trying to think of at, at a moment of salvation for Boris Johnson, your, your, your old friend. Uh, um, Uh, all we heard, all we heard in the last month was he's dead. He's toast. He's finished this scandal about having people over to drinks parties uh, while everybody else in the country was going to be arrested. If they visited their grandmother, uh, this was not survivable. No, exactly. And, uh, and quite rightly, a, a global existential crisis has somehow <laughs> managed to push the idea about whether or not Boris went to three or four drinks parties off the front pages of the uh, papers. In fact, uh, for the, uh, I read the Times yesterday, cover to cover, couldn't find anything, whereas the Times was absolutely obsessed about it. Uh, he might have to wind up paying 100 or 150 pounds, so what, uh, 200 $250 as a fine, um, fixed penalty notice, as they're called. Um, my sense is that uh, that he'll pay it and uh, we'll concentrate much more on, on whether or not Zelensky is still holding out in, in Kiev rather than um, thinking that this is an existential crisis for Boris Johnson. I think actually, whilst we're looking at um, things that it's pushed into the background, I'm rather hoping... Um, uh, having read uh, Abe's superb piece on uh, yes, this there is a counter revolution in the February uh, issue of Commentary, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. Uh, whether or not it might push woke uh, wokery and and all of the rest of the uh, of the culture wars at least uh, into the background for a bit, whilst we actually do consider a genuine war. Oh, there's well, <laughs> I don't know if you read your CBS News, Andrew, but we have been treated to a feature on the plight of transgender Ukrainians uh, who are much like every other Ukrainian uh, struggling uh, in these difficult times. Um, these are high end luxury crises that we can no longer afford. Hey, what do you think? Yes, I think well, as, as by the way, thank you so much for your kind words. Andrew, um, yeah, I see evidence of it already on social media. Where else? But um, uh, left-leaning liberals, um, I've seen dismissive of the kind of reports that Noah's talking about, about uh, the plight of uh, the, the war within the war, that, the, that as, as, the, as the headline put it, that, uh, that transgendered Ukrainians are, are now fighting. So, yeah, I mean, the, but the question, once again, is, is does it last? You know, um, well, and on college, not to be the skunk at the garden party, but on college campuses just this week, our libertarian friend Ilya Shapiro, who's currently being investigated by Georgetown Law School, uh, went to speak at the Hastings Law Center and was literally not allowed to speak. He was heckled. People got in his face, screaming and yelling at him. Um, while faculty who who were supposed to be part of a so-called debate encouraged the students and and he didn't get to speak. And there was a sort of 
little, you know, admonishment by administration. So this isn't who we are, but clearly there'll be no punishment for the students. Um, and he didn't get to say anything. So I, I worry that on campuses where, where it has become a mini industry and for which there are lucrative positions after they graduate from college that they could fill in this industry, it is an industry in the US, um, there's more incentive to keep it going at a bureaucratic level that will continue to create uh, woke, wokeness wherever we look, um, even if there's a hiatus. I'll tell you this. I, I do think that it that the, the crisis has dealt um, a more significant death blow to wokeness's mirror image, um, which is the kind of um, right-wing ideology that uh, you mentioned in J.D. Vance. And I, that, that, that is taking a huge hit. And, and the kind of statements that, that J.D. Vance and others make now strike me as a kind of death rattle, a sort of last gasp, because they see, they see that there's the, the, whatever public will there was, whatever audience they had for, for the, the kind of nationalist, um, pacifist, pacifist, anti-American, anti-American yeah. policies and, and ideas that they were, that they were spewing has, has, is drying up before their eyes. Now, Andrew, I would be remiss if we did not conclude, conclude the podcast with you, uh, giving, uh, our listeners, um, a sense of your latest book, the last King of America, your portrait of George the third, of course, now, um, a figure, uh, known best to all of America as the singer of um, You'll Be Back uh, from from uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. Um, uh, if you've seen the Disney Plus version, uh, Jonathan Groff sings it, uh, basically spewing spittle as he as he sings this uh, Britpop, uh, amazing Britpop number. Um, and uh, George III, of course, in very bad odor in the United States in 1776. And you've written this book in order to um, do some uh, reclamation of his of his reputation. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. The, the key historical document that you mentioned, um, Hamilton, the musical, is also, of course, uh, backed up in the Declaration of Independence, in which it said that George III was the unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Um, however, as I try to point out in my book, he was... Um, actually a constitutional monarch. He was a limited monarch. He believed in the 1688 revolution. He didn't believe in the divine right of kings. He was an enlightened monarch. He was a Renaissance prince in very many ways. And, uh, and he deserves another look um, by, uh, by Americans, but, uh, but also by everybody else. But thank you for giving me a chance to, uh, uh, to, to finish off with, uh, with that um, point of view. Well, I already, I already pushed, uh, I already pushed the Churchill biography, which every literate person in the world should read. Um, I am for some reason, I just want you to remind me because I have Patrick O'Brien's title stuck in my head um, because uh, another book that is well worth reading as the West goes to war, uh, thinking about, you know, World War II and the West going to war in the way that it may be going to war in Ukraine. Um, but the book that I'm thinking of, I think of as master and commander, but that it's not, it's, 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 it's I shamelessly plagiarized the title. Um, there's uh, okay. luckily no copyright in title. It's called masters and commanders. Uh, okay. Uh, and the, uh, and the subtitle in America is how, um, four Titans, Roosevelt, Churchill, Allen Brook and Marshall 
um, created the grand strategy in the West, 1941 to 45. Anyway, it's a, it's an absolutely uh, fantastic, uh, great man, great men of history uh, book and account uh, that will uh, enshrine the one less le- lesser known name, certainly in the United States of, 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 of Alan Brook, um, that, uh, that gives you a sense of, uh, again, history being contingent, how somebody like that, because of the circumstances, uh, that uh, led um, that led to World War II uh, made made him uh, a person for whom we can arguably say the world was who changed the world for the better, um, and we hope that that is the case with Zelensky and the other Ukrainians. Andrew Roberts, fantastic to have you on. Enjoy your Pollock Shinton uh, and your. Uh, <laughs> I was I was going for like a secondary Hungarian dish, so I didn't say goulash, <laughs> which is like just a cliche. I always love a, love a good a, I love a good Hungarian crepe filled with apricot. So, um, and uh, and I hope we can we can have you back. And for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning. <laughs> <laughs>